Hello and welcome to the RT Podcast, where three of our editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, and before we get started, just want to say that we're recording on the 11th floor this week instead of the 27th floor, so if you hear a little bit more noise, that's probably the reason why. So our guests this week are senior editor Tess Thackera. Hey, Tess. Hey, Isaac. And gallery's editor Casey Lesser. Hey, Casey. Hi, Isaac. This week, we're going to be talking about Casey's piece, The Women Who Championed Sexually Explicit Art in the 90s Are Relevant as Ever. Um, We're going to kind of think about the legacy of uh, sexually explicit art championed in the 70s, how things have changed today for women um, artists, and what will need to happen in the future. Um, Then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, my recent piece, um, talking about uh, the fashion industry's plagiarism problem, um, and all these artists that are coming forward to accuse big brands of taking their work without permission, also delving a little bit into appropriation art as well. So, Casey, you wrote a great piece about this show at uh, Macaron right now that features sexually explicit art by women. Can you explain a little bit of backstory? That show is based off an earlier show. There's a lot of history here. So, the show is called Coming to Power, 25 Years of Sexually Explicit Art by Women. And it's a show that was originally staged in 1993 at David's Werner. Um, it was the first year that he had opened his gallery. It was the third ever show there. And it was curated by Ellen Cantor, who was one of the artists in it. So basically in 1991, Ellen Cantor and Patricia Cronin were at Skowhegan. Um, they saw... What's Skowhegan for people who don't know? Skowhegan is a really amazing art residency, really historic in Maine. So they do these summer residencies every year, and um, there's always really prominent artists working there and um, promise, prominent artists who are the professors. Okay, so back to the 70s. So, These, they're so we're, actually, we're actually in 1991. Oh, we're ni- oh um, the 90s. So <laughs> <laughs> Much better. Okay. Well, so, maybe worse, actually. But anyway. Summer 1991, these two young artists, they were like late 20s, early 30s at the time. They saw in each other um, a shared kind of passion for owning sexuality in their art. And, you know, kind of reclaiming that sexuality that was so male-dominated at the time in the art world. So they went to their professor that summer, Joan Semmel, who was a pioneering feminist painter in the 70s. They said to her, kind of like, how can we break into the art world um, while creating this kind of work? And she saw in them that you know they had a lot of potential, but their work wasn't really going to break the market. So um, she said to them, why don't you curate a show around this theme? women creating sexually explicit art and it was something that she had written a publication on decades before at the end of the summer that fall they went back to new york and um they kind of worked uh, within their network and then kind of cast a broad scope of women creating this kind of art and they decided to do 25 years to be able to include the previous generation as well as their peers and they did a ton of studio visits and who were um, some of the big names in that show who they yeah. ended up including um so or who are now big names but maybe weren't at the time um they they were like linda benglis right. and hannah wilkie yoko ono is in it after the 60s and 70s where feminism was so prominent and female artists were starting to get that recognition um this was kind of a time where they kind of reverted back and the the previous macho male-dominated male gaze work was prominent again. So just to set the context here for this uh, Macaron show, which is, we'll talk a little bit about 
more specifically in a minute. You know, this is one of a number of all-female group shows that have happened recently this summer. Yeah, I mean, I would say we've reached sort of a fever pitch with regard to gender equity in the art world. I mean, not just shows past this year, but what we have coming up. You know, the Guerrilla Girls are about to release their latest stats on gender equity in the art world. The Brooklyn Museum has launched their Year of Yes, which is sort of honoring the Sackler Center for Feminist Art. Um, So they'll be running a year of shows, including Marilyn Minter. I think it's also important to sort of invoke the wider context here, which is, you know, this has been a year in which Planned Parenthood has routinely been targeted as though it's sort of a terrorist organization. We've had a number of rape cases on campuses that have been in the public eye. It's the year when we have Hillary Clinton up for election. So it's sort of, I think, a a complex period of time in which women's issues are sort of very much under the spotlight. I think that's a good way to sort of think about this show, Casey, because one of the things you touch on in your article is why is there a need to restage this? You know, if there was this huge focus on it in the 90s and in the 70s also to some extent, why did it keep, like, why does this cycle keep repeating and why did the curators feel like it was an important time now to, to bring it back? It's being restaged because I think, in my opinion, not enough progress has been made in terms of women creating art Um, where they're able to express their sexuality and really own sexuality. Basically, there's kind of this pattern where women have made great strides, but then the art world kind of reverts. And at this point, we don't see a lot of younger women artists creating sexually explicit art like the works in this show. And so in writing this piece, I spoke with four of the artists in the show, and Marilyn Minter, for example, told me that as older women, they have much more power to be able to own this type of work. And Marilyn Minter um, at the time was creating, in the 90s, was creating this series inspired by hardcore porn. And she kind of has built her reputation around sexually explicit work to the point where now in this day and age, she's kind of pigeonholed by it. And she said to me something like, she, like she'll create like a painting of a glass of water and someone will say you know it's by the sexual artist Marilyn Minter and she spits at them if they say that that was the end of it (laughs) no no she just had this (laughs) she had this quote that she gave me like that was kind of like her take on sexually explicit art anytime you try to categorize sexuality it will spit in your face so what does she mean by that I, (laughs) I, I think it's just that you know there's no way of like Putting it in a box. Yeah, no way of putting it in a box, no way of creating sexually explicit art that you're not going to get, like, some kind of reaction that, Or, like, trying to categorize it in, like, a neat and tidy way. Um, But something you said, which I thought was interesting, is how the art world, you use the word kind of reverts, and I'm curious, Tess, Mm -hmm. maybe you can provide some broader thoughts on, like, why it keeps reverting and, like... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, in a way, quite frustrating that we keep finding ourselves here and... The fact that we need to keep revisiting this subject matter is reflective of the fact that, you know, you can't make this type of work and then have it be accepted enough that you can then go and move on to another realm or subject of exploration, if you like. I mean, I was at a talk on Monday night with some of the big female leaders of um, museums in New York, like Thelma Golden and Anne Pasternak, and they were sort of talking about their lifetimes of working on these issues and bringing women to the fore of the art world and 
So the title of the panel was something like New Voices, New Visions. And someone in the audience, I think her name was Andrea Gaia Gaia, expressed some frustration about why this was being framed as new voices when in fact... Thelma Golden has been working in the art world for decades. Director of the Studio Museum. Yes, director of the Studio Museum. um, Has had an extraordinary influence on the New York art world. And so Andrea Gay was sort of saying, why are we still framing these as new voices, pioneering, you know, these are actually old, you guys are old voices. We've Mm -hmm. had these conversations already. And why is there this constant cultural forgetting of the influence of women so that we have to keep revisiting these things? And so she's actually undertaking a really interesting project in which she surfaces all of the forgotten accomplishments of women in the New York art world in the 20s and 30s, including, you know, the fact that MoMA was founded by three women, something that not a lot of people know. So, yeah, I mean, one one thing, Casey, that's in your piece is sort of this, like, language of ahead of their time or pioneering, like, a ton of sort of really time-based words that reveal some of these implicit biases or end processes of forgetting and re-forgetting. Yeah, so when a, a gallery or museum mounts a show like this of these women who are known as pioneering, it's kind of like we're overlooking the fact that, you know, they weren't recognized in their time or people say they're ahead of their time but that's a really unfair thing to say rather um, it's very possible that the case was that their time wasn't accepting of them. This sort of touches on um, a quote that I wrote down from someone again at this talk on Monday who said we're considered outside the mainstream even though we are the mainstream Mm -hmm. and so I think when you attach these labels like pioneering feminist artist you do you look niche even though you're not I would like to say however that we do this at Artsy a lot you know in the way we frame our articles we're often calling women artists pioneering feminists this that and the other and I think the problem is that until the culture widely accepts women on the same level as men then you need to constantly be bringing visibility so it's a practice of making the invisible visible and so I think this is just going to continue and we'll probably keep doing it as well until there is gender equity right and something we've talked about is how like these all-female group shows like it's a trend right now but it really needs to not be just a flash in the pan thing where this is happening again 10 years from now you know, and everyone has forgotten about it. And, you know, I, I spoke with these artists that are included in the Macaron show about this idea of the all-female show, and Joan Semmel um, said to me, you know, no one ever said anything when they were all-male group shows, and, you know, they are an important platform for women artists today, but in order to, you know, raise the equality among gender in the art world it needs to be what you're saying about how it needs to not be marginalized it needs to be part of the mainstream and considered part of the mainstream group shows need to like heavily weight women rather than just Mm -hmm. include a couple i will say that you know i think some people sort of get fatigued with these conversations um constantly highlighting minority groups someone in the audience actually at this talk again on monday said I'm hearing so much about women artists and African-American artists and this artist and what about the actual art itself? And my response to that would be that in my grad school classes, I routinely experience, uh, I'm routinely in class with teachers who will 
spend three classes talking about abstract expressionism and never once acknowledge that women were not part of that movement. Same thing with surrealism. I've seen this time and time again. So, But you get up and correct them. And I, yeah, but I'm like the annoying grad school student that's like, clears my voice and is like, excuse me, can, you know, it's like, it, you, it's still a, a mainstream issue. So switching gears, I'm going to hand this next segment over to Tess. Yes, so I'm going to take the reins here as we're now going to talk about an article that Isaac wrote um, called How Artists Are Fighting Back Against the Fashion Industry's Plagiarism Problem. Um, And this, Isaac, is really a piece looking at a number of cases Mm -hmm. in which corporations have stolen artwork from artists. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, people who are even sort of tangentially following the art world or the fashion world have sort of noticed a a feeling that there's been an uptick in these kind of cases where artists have accused fashion brands of using their work uh, on t-shirts there's a very prominent case a few months ago where over 40 artists came out and accused zara of using their work on pins for sale in their stores and zara is like this multi-billion dollar company and all of these artists are like tiny individual people who managed to get a ton of traction on social media um, and eventually forced Zara to pull the works from their website and their stores. This must be so prevalent. How can we possibly keep it in check and sort of control against uh, fashion industry's plagiarisms? I think it's hard to put that on that onus on the consumer. I, I know one person, someone reached out and sort of talked to me a little bit about how I didn't really think about this from the perspective of the fashion company. I think one one lawyer I spoke to spoke and said that there's really no system of checks and balances across the industry to kind of prevent this from happening. I mean, obviously there are some cases where you're like, wow, that's verbatim. You just took this image from this artist that you saw and put it on like a t-shirt. You really, that's ridiculous. And there's somewhere you can kind of see that they might've gone through some, a step here, a step there. Maybe it was part of an early creative brainstorming process and just wound up on the final product. But uh, like this lawyer said, there's just no system of checks and balances. Mm-hmm. I don't think you know they're going to ever be able to organize a successful boycott of Zara. What I will say is that part of this is just tied into the way these companies do business. So fast fashion is predicated and has been hugely successful based off the idea that you capitalize on trends incredibly quickly get things to the stores as soon as possible because people are very fickle and you want to reduce markdowns, which are just sales to get unsold merchandise out of the store. What do you mean by fast fashion? What are those brands? So those are brands where I think most of us shop places like Zara, Forever 21, Top Man. These have all been brands also that have been accused by various artists of taking their work and which legally is, is more than just, you know, something you can wave your fist in the air about and see nothing happen. It's, it's actually something that artists can and do sue these companies for. Though, though I should also say that the average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. They spend $1,700 on clothes each year. And to feed that demand, I mean, the average wardrobe is also three times the size it was 40 years ago. To feed that demand requires an incredible amount of stuff. So everyone is trying to produce stuff that looks cool, um, that's interesting, and that speaks to like a certain moment. And a lot of the time, you know, for, for lack of a better word, the tastemakers are 
artists who are cool, hip, know what's going on. You know. Has this ever had a positive uh, impact for an artist? Well, there have been times where it's interesting people do say that after one of these cases has arisen, um, or at least people in the media put that question to artists. And by and large, the experience has been like, I didn't need this to happen to me to like, you know, get, get more focus. And I think generally the answer is no. Though there have been positive collaborations between artists and brands when they do work together. American Apparel uh, worked with Kesh, uh, which I wrote about a little bit in my piece. This this street artist named Gucci Ghost is now working working with Gucci in in a in a partnership that a lot of people in the fashion industry are really excited about. So the, I think that's also what kind of makes this so disappointing is that mm-hmm. if things can slow down, if you can send an email, if you can work something out, a lot of the time the artist will be like, "Yes, I'm more than happy to to collaborate." They just need recognition. They just need yeah. recognition. One of the big questions I have is just you know. There's a big sort of super visual culture out there and um, there's a lot of cross-pollination and derivative activity. How is this different from, say, the pop artist start event stealing from Warhol and selling her work? Yeah, there are certain legal standards about fair use and modification that will govern any specific case. I've written a little bit about artist copyright in the past and the exceptions to that. So if you're if you're an artist thinking about appropriating, you should you should check that out. It's hazardous ground, honestly. Like appropriation artists get sued all the time. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. Lawyers I've spoken to have sort of said that some you know, there are certain standards that apply across the board. Would a reasonable average observer be able to tell the difference between these two is one. But ultimately it does come down to the decision of the judge and sort of the the originality of the piece in question. One thing that is always bad is when a, someone takes a work, like a big company takes a work from an artist, like a one-off street graffiti piece, uses it and then just mass produces it. That's not gonna be, uh, uh, good in court because it's just sort of you're you're really trying to commercialize it off um, commercialize off of it and copyright exists to ensure the economic interests of the owner mm-hmm. and the original creator of of the work you wrote about how brands are taking imagery from artists but are there other ways that they can take advantage of artists i wrote mainly about artists who have had their work taken and just put on like clothing one huge problem which i didn't really touch on even though just for space reasons is street art, which most people or a lot of people have the misconception um, that since something is in the street, it's up for grabs. Not true. If a work has been put on a building with the consent of the owner and isn't illegal, it's totally copyrightable. So some in, there have been instances where companies have been accused by street artists who typically really hate, 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 hate having their work commercialized because their cred comes from like being arrested, not being part of like a big campaign have had their work end up in advertisements. I mean, there was one case where this street artist accused American Apparel of using his mural in the background of advertisements, and this, these advertisements popped up in Medellin, in Tokyo, on the banner of the website, and he had no, he did not authorize this. And you wrote about how social media is kind of a double-edged sword in this arena. Yeah, so you have the kind of advent of these new mechanisms of communication that allow for people to essentially for free publicize their work. And for a lot of artists, that's been literally how they make their living, how they cultivate a following. But at the same time, you've also created a platform for visibility, which is both good and bad because works on Instagram can end up being 
by a brand and thrown onto a t-shirt. So a lot of the artists I spoke to then said that when they raise these issues of what, what they allege is uh, copyright infringement on social media, it provides this additional benefit where there's a huge outpouring of support. A lot of the time artists don't feel like they can take on a big company you know, social media can provide an incredible support for them. And, and a lot of the artists I spoke to credit it with pressuring companies to take down works that they say uh, were a copyright infringement much quicker. Yeah, I think if there is some comfort to be drawn from these cases, it's both that there is an incredibly supportive community out there to help artists, but also that the work artists are creating is the most new fresh and engaging um sort of visual content if you like out there and it's really important to protect artists that's why their work is stolen because it's good you know i feel like every other month we read we read a piece about how conceptual art or contemporary art is isn't relevant and doesn't speak to our lives um but it's on the shirt that you're wearing and uh, maybe you just don't know that and the artist doesn't know it either I think that's a good note to end on. Are we going to do white wine, Isaac? Whoa, are you trying to take? You're trying to take control. Going this is a, a little coude, bit power hungry. This is a <laughs> podcast here. Okay, yes, let's do let's do white wine. So, Casey, where will you be drinking white wine in the art world this week? I'm actually going to Warsaw this weekend for their annual gallery weekend. So I'll be going around to 23 galleries. That sounds kind of exhausting. It's a very specific number. That there, right. there are 23 participating <laughs> galleries, and there's right. a whole program of events. Okay, got it. And Tess, what about you? Uh, I'm going to be going to the Taryn Simon performance at the New York Park Avenue Armory tomorrow night, which, as I understand it, is uh, sort of an exploration of human mourning, and she's hired a number of professional mourners from various places all over the world who are occupying some... Uh, giant sort of they look like I don't know flutes or columns Um, they together they look like a giant organ and uh, this was a structure designed by the architecture firm OMA that sounds like a serious meditation on it's gonna be really sad life and sadness I'm also seeing something fairly sad it's I'm gonna go see Catalan's toilet at the Guggenheim if I can (laughs) if I can make it there I think that'll really really sad yeah when I'm going to the bathroom I feel like I'll really ponder you know mortality and it'll be great I don't know I feel like I'll show up look at the line and be like no there's no way I'm gonna I know I know our our very own Abigail Kane wrote a piece about New Yorkers reactions that was really good maybe that'll be a stand-in but we'll see that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guests, Tess and Casey. Please remember to rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We got production help this week from Abigail Kane. Our producer is Joe Sykes. The theme music is Broke for Free. See you guys next time. <laughs>